The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. You can find them at itlcoaching.com. ITL Coaching and Performance exists to build a community of athletes set on reaching goals and serving the community. They have a passion for helping people achieve their goals and dreams. ITL coaches are real people with phones, emails, and a desire to spend time with you during your training. They are vested in ITL athletes. ITL takes a communal approach to your coaching, so there's always somebody available to answer your questions and to help you adjust your training schedule. An ITL coach will be glad to meet with you to chat about your goals and find the best plan to help you meet those goals. Again, the ITL Coaching and Performance website is itlcoaching.com. The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel. You can find them at bluepineappletravel.com. Blue Pineapple Travel are experienced travel agents who help you design the perfect trip. They are all well-traveled and knowledgeable, and they will be your advocates from start to finish. The agents at Blue Pineapple Travel love to help people plan their travel. Their goal is to match you with the trip that you want. Whether you're looking for relaxation or adventure, traveling solo or with a group inside the United States or outside the United States, they are there to match you to the trip for you. Blue Pineapple Travel will help you curate all the travel information out there to create the exact vacation that you want. Again, their website is bluepineappletravel.com. And finally, the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by SlayerX, www.slayerx.com. SlayerX is a sports nutrition company that makes products for athletes, team sports, and anyone that trains or works outdoors. SlayerX was founded by an endurance athlete and University of Georgia food scientist who was unhappy with the choices he was offered on course in long course triathlons. He started making his own mixes and now you can enjoy those same mixes. SlayerX offers differing levels of electrolytes in their hydration products and you can get them with or without calories. You can either take their online test at SlayerX.com or you can be tested in their laboratory to determine the exact amount of liquid and electrolytes that you need to be consuming while racing. In addition to hydration products, SlayerX offers fueling products like their product Diesel, which is available with or without the optimum level of caffeine that is scientifically proven to legal enhance performance while limiting GI upset and diuretic impact. If you're looking for alternative gel, try SlayerX's new Spark Plug, a Pop Rocks-like powder that combines the same electrolytes that are in their other products, encapsulated caffeine, and quickly absorbed carbohydrates. It comes in a plastic tube so it can be carried while running and it will work to enhance and fuel your alertness, general happiness, and performance. Remember, tell them that the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast sent you by using the coupon code PLEASANT2019 at checkout on the website and you'll get 10% off anything that you purchase there. That's SlayerX.com, PLEASANT2019. Test, don't guess with SlayerX. Thanks to all of our sponsors for helping us to bring you the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. everybody welcome back to the most pleasant exhaustion podcast brought to you by ITO coaching and performance blue pineapple travel and slayer x my name is george darden i'm an endurance athlete and coach here in atlanta georgia and i'm patrick Ollinger, also an endurance coach and athlete here in atlanta georgia and i'm michelle frank also an endurance athlete here in atlanta georgia full house in the most pleasant exhaustion studios uh let me appeal to everyone who is listening right now to give us a good title for michelle frank we spent way too much time immediately prior to hitting record on this podcast trying to figure out exactly what we should call her. It's kind of a no-brainer that we go with endurance athlete and coach for me and Patrick, but Michelle, she's more than just an athlete. But I'm not a coach. But she's not a coach. But 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 and I we don't, don't have want, time to We coach. don't want to say super fan because I, I don't know. Tell us what you want us to call Michelle, and she will be thus called. Um we are glad you all joined us once again. Uh, we're going to be talking about Mary Kane, Nike, Oregon Project, all that sort of thing. Uh, and so that's the reason why we, we brought in the big guns today, both Michelle and Patrick here. Uh, Michelle, you want to recap it for us? Sure. Um, you spoke a little bit about it last week in your intro, but I think um, I just want to give sort of a perspective on how fast and how good Mary Kane was. Um, she was back in 2013-14 when she was in high school. She had, you know, the outdoor record for everything from the 800 to the 5,000. Um, she had a world junior indoor record in the 1,000 meter and also the national uh, record indoor for the 1,500 through the two mile. And then, of course, in 2013, we saw her reach the finals um, at Worlds, Senior Worlds in Moscow. So she has, you know, every accolade you could have through being kind of a child prodigy, best high school runner, in the nation, and then we saw her forego um, 
a college career um, and turned professional. She had started working with Alberto Salazar when she mm-hmm. was 16, and she was a straight-A student. Mm-hmm. She could have probably gone to any school she wanted, any Division One program, but she gave her NCAA eligibility up and moved to Portland, um, joined the Nike Oregon Project, trained with Alberto, and shortly after she did that, she sort of fell off the running radar. Um, she didn't have very many good performances there. She didn't continue to make teams. And then we really didn't see her much and basically found out at some point she had left Portland, moved back to New York, was kind of regrouping. Um, I feel like this was easy to foreshadow if you look at the path of an 18-year-old girl leaving the security of you know suburban New York with a great family and going out and starting college, but not being on a college team and trying to run professionally and kind of that whole path. And a few weeks ago, we basically saw her release an op-ed in the New York Times, and it was titled, I was the fastest girl in America until I joined Nike. So it was a seven minute video um, with, you know, an outpouring of uh, articles and commentary after in which she detailed her path to the Nike Oregon Project, working with Alberto Salazar, her downward spiral in her running career, and how ultimately she was a victim of both emotional and physical abuse. So this kind of comes on the heels of the four-year ban that Mm -hmm. Salazar was just issued, which we've spoken about at length, I think three podcasts ago. And I think at this point, she just kind of had a little bit of fuel um, to... to the fire of maybe what had been building up in her for a long time. And everything that's happened up to this point about Salazar and the Nike Oregon project kind of just gave her maybe that final push in order to um, call the New York times uh, writer who's Lindsay Krause, who's done some amazing, amazing work in the running and women's sports uh, for the New York times. And, you know, wrote this piece with her. So now we see this everywhere. Um, We've got it you know, on every major media publicity and um, an outpouring of commentary and additional people who both ran with her, trained with her, coached her, who kind of laid witness to the abuse um, from Salazar. So I think we are all kind of wondering what to do next (laughs) Um, and both, you know, kind of feeling sorry for her career that never actually happened and probably never will happen because of the abuse that she suffered as Salazar's athlete. Yeah, the, the only thing, I, that was a great recap. The only thing that I would add, and it was something that I actually forgot to mention last week, um, is that, that in that video she says as a result of the abuse, she actually got to a suicidal place. Yeah, I mean, she said that she got to the point where she started cutting herself, um, and she said that she specifically would cut her legs when she had these suicidal thoughts because why are my legs not, you know, running fast enough? Why... Am I being constantly told how poorly I'm doing and um, what I should be doing to be running to my potential and that I'm too heavy to be running? And she told Salazar um, and one of the assistants that she was cutting herself, which is probably what I assume an 18-year-old female who's away from her family across the country cry for help. I can't imagine anything more direct. And they pretty much ignored it. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, I got to the point where... It was bad enough that once she, you know, said something to her teammates and her coaches and nothing was going to happen, she told her parents and she made it really clear that her parents had her on the next flight home from Portland. Um, She never went back. So, yeah, pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, Horrifying. Um, And and, and a a tragic situation. And I, I appreciate your mentioning, too, what a brilliant runner she was. Um, I mean, I was such a huge fan. Um, and I'm still a fan, obviously, but 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 I, I, she was one of those runners that you're like, wow, that's incredible. She just did that. And then she did something even more incredible the following week and then something even more incredible the following week. And, and, and uh, it was just amazing to see that. And, and as you said, she qualified for a world championship final in the 1500 at age 17. I said 16 last week, but age 17 as a high school runner, a world championship final in the 1500 they don't you don't just get to sign up for that (laughs) no i mean she was by all means the you know destined to be the next greatest thing both in terms of american runners and female runners worldwide um i feel like we always i always put you in this back and forth of what to do with these high school prodigies and how to save them so that they can have a lifetime (laughs) 
mm-hmm. of running and not just burnout, but she definitely, you know, she was just so good at so young of an age and so fast. And when Alberto Salazar calls her parents at 16 years old and said, you know, you have talent that I've never seen that's unmatched and I want to coach you. Um, and then it's the slow, gradual Alberto begins, you know, designing her workouts, working with her high school coach, talking with her parents. I mean, he probably almost became a father figure to her from across the country. So she was probably never going to run in college and slow down the trajectory once Alberto got sight of her. But, you know, it was her dream. She could have been the fastest girl in America. She could have gone to the Olympics. Um, I don't think she really had any roadblocks in front of her when she was 16 years old. So, yeah, yeah. All right, so I gave my hot takes last week that that it's important to keep in mind like what abuse is. Abuse is all about the abuser maintaining, uh, establishing and maintaining control. Right. Um, and that, that it's not so much about like, um, uh, it had nothing to do essentially with her weight, is what, what was my point, is that, that it was all about that Salazar fulfilling some psychological need he had to, to control her. Um, that was one thing. And then the other thing I pointed out is, as, as, Michelle just alluded to is that she was 18 years old. Um, and imagine yourself at age 18 years old, moving across the country away from everything you've always ever known. Imagine yourself as a freshman in college and how overwhelming that was and how much you instill into the new, new authority figures in your life. That's what she, that was her situation. Um, and so she was in a very vulnerable position. Um, and, and, uh, rather than kind of recognizing that and, and nurturing her and, and taking care of her, uh, Salazar went the opposite direction. Yeah, and she didn't even have the typical 18-year-old go-to-college trajectory. I mean, she went to Portland. You know, she went to a college that was far below what she could have gone to in terms of academics. She didn't have the support of teammates, um, you know, or an athletic system at a university. I mean, she was really kind of out there high and dry on her own, trying to adjust to life as a professional athlete and, you know, take 15 or 20 credits her freshman year, like a typical okay, so college. She, she, so she did enroll in, a, in, in Portland College? Yeah, okay. she was at okay. uh, Portland. I didn't totally realize that. All right, so very good. So, all right, so I want to hear Patrick's hot takes and Michelle's hot takes. I gave you my two main hot takes. Patrick, why don't you go first? You don't have much to say. Sure. So, before I even get to my hot takes, let's also like, kind of backtrack a bit. And just in case folks aren't very familiar with this story or didn't really get to dive into it before this podcast, it, you know, it, it, it sounds like, and, and I'm just, most of us are just trying to gather bits and pieces in terms of, of, of what happened. And in many ways, we weren't offered many specifics right kind of what you alluded to in terms of the abuse but it's very clear that it was like persistent it was persistent control Mm -hmm. like kind of like the body weight was kind of the the prime example where he very much wanted to almost like control her body in a way that really no you know coach or adult figure should you know with you know in any athlete in, in any sport um so, you know, I just kind of wanted to kind of backtrack and say we're still kind of finding out exactly what happened, but it's very clear that it was an unhealthy situation. Yes. Yeah, and it was a it was some it was yeah. an adult taking advantage of a child. A, a child or at the very least a young adult in a vulnerable position. Yeah. No, I, and I I would say a child. Um I mean, yeah, 18 you can vote, but you know, they don't even let you rent a car to 24. <laughs> um, you know, and 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 so so yeah. And I, I, I've, I still very much think that 18 is, I mean, and, and, and folks can disagree with me on this, and that's perfectly fine. I very much think that 18-year-olds are not, are not fully formed adults yet. But, um, but yeah, there, there, there were a couple of specifics that she mentioned in, in the initial video. And then we've actually started folding in some of the specifics here over the course of the last little while. And then there's also been, in addition, uh, much closer to home, Amy Begley. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a follow-up article yep. this week, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more in just a minute here. And uh, she was with the Nike Oregon Project from about 2007 until about 2011. Um, mm-hmm. and, and she talked about some of the specifics uh, because she was evidently a, a real target of a lot of Alberta Salazar's abuse as well. But we're going to talk about that more in a minute. Um, other hot takes, uh, Michelle and, and Patrick? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important that the accusations which came out in the seven-minute video, basically Salazar you know, publicly shamed her for her weight he weighed her in front of teammates. He wanted her to take both birth control and diuretics, which, by the way, I believe are banned in track and field to lose it is. weight. It, is. Um, it caused, you know, Mary to be um, to have amenorrhea for three years. She broke five bones. She began cutting herself. Um, so the accusations are, you know, medically and scientifically backed up and, and pretty, yeah. pretty 
pretty horrible. <laughs> when, when she went to the doctor, he went with her, and he went in the room with her. He chose the doctor, and then he went in the room with her as and was there during the exam. Yeah, okay, when that I read that, yeah, I that feel like Larry Nassar all over again. No, that... that, that Worse. <laughs> yeah, that to me... Different, not, not, not only does that feel like like gross, frankly, um, but it, but it, it I, I think it speaks to a level of control. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that... The, the, I'm going to choose your doctor. It's going to be somebody that I say is okay, and, and I'm going to be there with you, and I'm going to do most of the talking. Yeah, and I think we came to find out that even though the doctor that you're referring to was actually a medical doctor, that mm-hmm. a lot of the people who assisted Salazar with his um, mm-hmm. athletes, the nutritionists, the sports psychologist, you know, based on everything we've read, they weren't really licensed um, yeah. nutritionists or exactly. dietitians. They weren't exactly. licensed psychologists. They were yeah. kind of just... Almost my, Salazar cronies. <laughs> right. My they friend totally Steve, yeah. They totally were. They, they, the guy, so when, when she complained, or when she went to Salazar, and, and mind you, consider the amount of, of bravery that it would take to do this. But, but when she goes to Salazar and says, hey, I'm really struggling. By the way, you're the source of my struggling. But she didn't say that. I'm really struggling. Right. I'm actually feeling suicidal. I've been cutting myself. She goes to him and to the sports psychologist, the guy that, that she's been told is is there for her psychological well-being. She goes and tells them that, musters up the courage to go and say that. And and Salazar evidently at the time said something to the effect of, I just need to go to sleep. I'm really tired right now. And they both blow her off. Yeah. Um, turns out that guy, Darren Treasure, um, is not really. Not, he's not even a he's not even a licensed psychologist. He was just like one of Salazar's buddies who who has a degree and maybe a couple of books. Um, and so that that's actually one thing that I feel has been standing out to me like over the course of the last little while. And and. We've had a few people write in and talk about how, how the culture and the overall scene was a problem, and we're going to get to that. But, but to me, I keep, I, I've also been coming back this week to, to like who gets to be a coach and who gets to be a psychologist and stuff like that. And, and it very much felt like Alberto Salazar's cronies. But I'm also like, well, I, I recognize and appreciate Salazar's amazing running career, but I'm like, who the hell is he, actually? Like, like, where, where, where did he come from? How, how did he actually become a coach too? And granted, okay, yeah, I recognize. I'm not trying to say I'm a better coach than Alberto Salazar. Don't write in you about might that. Be. So, but, but, but for me, if I think about like myself as an athlete, like when I think about where, where I was in my own mindsets as an athlete, I literally had to shed those in order to become a coach. Yes. Um. And and. On the Tuesday morning track work, I would actually the, argue that you haven't completely. I have a lot of that. I, I, I know you're right. <laughs> when it comes I, to your own running, <laughs> so so I, I'll have it when it comes to my own running. But 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 that's what, actually what I was about to say. On the Tuesday morning track workouts that I do, I, I don't run those. Right. And the reason why is because I learned very early on in my coaching career that if I run a workout during a time when I'm supposed to be coaching, I flip into the athlete mindset, and that's not a good coaching mindset. Somebody comes up to me and is like, oh, coach, my knee is kind of hurting. What should I do? I'm, and like the athlete mindset is like, suck it up. You need to, you know. And the coach mindset is like, let's talk about your knee. Let's talk about what's going on with this. Coach, I'm, I, I'm really struggling with this last little bit. Well, let's talk about Let's modify the workout. Whereas the athlete makes, it, makes me want to say, suck it up, be tougher, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I don't know that he ever went through the sort of training or come to Jesus type moments where he said, okay, I need to not be the same person as a coach as I am as an athlete. Um, yeah, he was self-destructive as an athlete. Oh, totally. Completely. He, he, I mean, he, they literally read him his last rites at, at the Falmouth Road Race because uh, they thought he was going to die. And so clearly he's hard as the nails as an athlete, but that's not the approach you want to take as a coach. Yeah. Definitely not. It yeah. clearly ran um, many of his athletes you know, into the ground, and we've heard lots of stories about decisions that he made, um, specifically, you know, for example, Kara Goucher having to come back six months postpartum and raced the Boston Marathon in 2011. And he, and, he, and he told Adam that she was too fat. He told his her mom and her sister, yeah, with Adam there, that she was still too heavy, and that was her marathon PR. And, you know, she will tell you, and I've spoken to her about this in person, that coming back that quickly from pregnancy um, and running that hard on her body led to a stress fracture that, you know, plagued her for years and probably derailed the rest of her professional running career. So, um you know, I just want to mention one more thing that Mary's gotten a little bit of, I mean, I guess there's always the comments in the slack that people are going to get, but she didn't just come out to tell kind of a sob story and to get empathy from everybody. She's really kind of part of this um, movement to advocate for change mm-hmm. for women's sports and, and specifically, you know, professional female runners mm-hmm. in the professional women's running industry. And, and her big three 
you know, her big three takeaways for the type of change that she felt we need to see for the sport. Um, first of all, she completely put all the blame on Nike and said Nike needs to change. And I think we all know that it's not just Nike, but um, we've seen clearly that Nike is directly implicit in everything Salazar and, and supporting him and whatever that means in terms of him and his athletes. Let's pause on that one. Okay. Yeah. So, so, because, so, because, I, I wanna, I wanna, I, I like the idea of that. Now we're gonna talk about those three things. Let's talk about each one of them in turn. How do you feel about Nike, Patrick? <laughs> how do I feel about Nike? I know how I'm feeling about Nike. I ran a race yesterday, and I literally covered up my Nike swooshes during the race um, because I, I'm, I'm not feeling good about Nike right now. Well, well let me uh, kind of narrow the scope of that question to say how do I, how do I feel about <laughs> Nike running a Nike Oregon project? And it's honestly... Well, everybody feels bad about Nike Oregon Project. I mean, yeah, no, obviously that. But, but I mean, so right, right now, I'm annoyed with Nike, and I'm mad at Nike, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm not wearing the swoosh, and I'm not branding myself with them, because Nike's approach has been to totally stick with Alberto Salazar. And by the way, I should also say, and, and y'all are the corporate America people, you can explain this to me, like the normal corporate America approach is just to like cut off the poison limb. And just be like, oh, yeah, we have nothing to do with that guy. Yeah, we're totally good. And frankly, I'd actually be okay with that. But Nike's not doing that. And that's kind of mind-blowing to me. Well, I think Nike's going to have to make a decision. Because they can't continue to stand by Alberto Salazar. um, And, you know, launch their quote-unquote independent investigation of what happened between Salazar and Mary Kane. So we might see a shift in Nike's opinion and support, but... I hope so, man. You're talking about... 15 weeks to the Tokyo Marathon. I need that shift to take place. So that you can wear your vapor flies? <laughs> yeah, so I can wear my vapor flies. And I have looked at things to paint over them, by the way, but go ahead, yeah. Patrick. Well, I think they're doing what a lot of, you know, organizations that find themselves in this situation do, and they are investigating to find out, A, can we get away with this without admitting right. wrongdoing? And then if, it come, if they realize, oh, we can't, then we'll mea culpa and really, like cut out the poison so to speak and be like oh this we didn't realize all this was happening or this was wrong on our part yada yada um i think you're right but, but i think the corporate america is so cynical the, I, mean, I, I think you're totally right but but keep going yeah i mean it's it's um it, it's they don't want to admit that they ever did wrong from like a court of law perspective because then then you're admissible then you're liable right. but then if it gets to a point where okay you've already been caught right-handed then we'll admit it and kind of do the whole we're sorry and they'll release a big advertising campaign i'm sure um but, but wouldn't they be able to mitigate that because I, I agree with you but wouldn't they be able to mitigate that if they were to say oh wow we didn't totally understand what was going on but as soon as we found out we distanced ourselves from him we 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 we, we got him so far away from us that we can't even see him anymore I mean, wouldn't that be an approach? I mean, go ahead. So I, I think no we idea. might be confusing that where we see Nike standing with Salazar is in the accusations of the doping and the four-year ban mm-hmm. from USADA. And I think Nike has a pretty good history of standing by its coaches and athletes that, you know, are clearly guilty of some type of doping violation. So Mary King coming forward and them saying they're going to launch an independent investigation, we haven't actually seen them come out and say, oh, here's Mary Kane abusing Salazar, accusing Salazar of both emotional and physical abuse and all these other subsequent stories that are coming out to corroborate, you know, her experience and we're still standing by Salazar. So I think that they're in a gray area right now. Okay. Um, and, you know, launching an independent investigation, I think it's really going to be interesting to see how independent is their actual investigation. Which I would um, bet it's not going to be very independent. Well, it needs to be if they want, you know, to yeah. save any face in this situation. Um, but I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm pretty cynical about that independent investigation, and that kind of gets at the, one of the, my big takeaways that I've had, I've come across. And as I mentioned before, we're still learning what actually happened. And honestly, it sounds like it's only going to get worse before it gets better, which is kind of the point I was trying to make earlier, where we we know bits and pieces right now, but at this point, I would be very surprised if it didn't get worse over the next few weeks before it got better. Um, and the, the my, one of my biggest takeaways is it sounds like Salazar almost just like walked on water there and there was no checks yeah. and balances. And you see this, you see this honestly with a lot of big time college programs in, in a lot of the revenue sports where there's one single coach that just calls all the shots. Mm-hmm. And every time it seems to end like this, where it's like they had too much control. There were a lot of, human beings who were, you know, abused physically, emotionally, 
um, or taking advantage uh, to some degree. You know, when, when people tried to raise questions or, or, you know, bring some kind of diverse voices, they just squelched it. And, you know, from an institutional perspective, you just can't, you can't have one single, you know, dictator, for lack of a better word, who just kind of gets to be the judge and the jury. And, and it sounds like that's certainly what was set up. And when you talk about he was hiring the team doctor, that's the most obvious conflict of interest he could possibly have. I mean, there's a reason in other sports, like Tom Brady didn't have the Patriots doctor do his knee surgery. Mm-hmm. He, he went to an independent person. I mean, that's what you have to do in any professional setting is, or any professional athlete is to go um, to an independent doctor. Mm-hmm. And especially with someone like Mary Kane, who was young enough to probably not know that that's, you know, a, a potential source of conflict or a potential source of manipulation. Because because the team doctor is going to, to prescribe things or, or, or make a prognosis based around what's best for the team rather than what's best for the individual athlete, right? Is that what you mean? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Like she, um, you know, and, and I felt like one of the things that made me sick to my stomach listening to that video, what, I mean, one of like 10 things where she said, I didn't realize they didn't have my best interest at heart. And I just remember like almost sinking in my chair like, mm-hmm. oh, geez, like you got to know as a professional athlete, no, like they do not have your best interest at heart. And, and, and I think that's and I think that's that goes back to the 18 year old thing. For yeah, me. for the, sure. The, the, and, and we can have a conversation some other time about whether a college coach necessarily has their at best, their athlete's best interest at heart. But but for me, that's that's a fundamental part about coaching. And think about it, she had just come from a, a high school model where, yeah. where, where, where coaches are encouraged, for the most part, not entirely, are encouraged to be educators. Um, and that, you know, athletes first, winning second, that kind of thing. And so she'd very much come from that and, and probably assumed that, that that's, there, there was going to be at least a little bit of a transition um, as opposed to, to somebody that, that put this really, really, well, yeah, I, I just, I, 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 again, kind of go back to that fact that, that there's no way that she could have known. Agreed. And that, not only that, that. She didn't have the wherewithal for that because she's only 18 years old. And she didn't have any kind of mentors or any kind of, like, I mean, big sister, big brother. Like, there was no one there she could reach out to. Because they were like. all cowed by Salazar as well. Exactly. And which, which is which is an important point we're going to get to here in just a second. Because because there were older people there. There was no real bridges, because she's 18 and the next oldest person was like 24. And so, yeah. so, so there's not a, a real bridge there for it. But, but, but there was also a degree to which other people were being abused as well. And that's actually probably where we should segue into. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to conclude the first point about Nike needing to change oh, and right. how yeah. we feel about Nike. Um, <laughs> I forgot I think we're what, in the middle of three points. It's okay. <laughs> what we've all come to learn is that this specific issue is a Nike, Alberto Salazar, Mary Kane issue, but it really is more systemic in terms of any sport and any coach that has too much power. Mm-hmm. And it couldn't be men and women. And it's it's kind of all over the place. All right, hang on real quick. Before you do that second point, let's take a quick break and we have to have our mid-podcast Slayerx question session. So let's check that out. This week, we have with us the first of our periodic installments where the folks from Slayerx are with us to answer the questions that you have sent in. We have Chuck and Kara from Slayerx with us on the phone. So let's get right to the things that you, the listener, asked. Chuck and Kara, welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Hi, thanks for having us back. Thanks, George. Yeah, yeah. So the first question that was sent in to us to, to ask y'all is, does the level of saltiness in your sweat change based on how hot it is? And so if you say that another way, if you're sweating more or if it's hotter outside, is your sweat saltier than it would be if you were sweating less or vice versa? Um, not going to be significantly different now, duh, temperatures. Um, your sodium concentration in your sweat is... is it's pretty much a genetic predisposition of, of, of your, your makeup, your, your, your physiological makeup. So there are some, uh, some, some minor changes that could happen uh, due to uh, uh, how much salt you take in in your food. Or, or for example, uh, people who follow more of a low-salt and low-sodium diet versus high-sodium diet. There's some studies out there for that that we can talk about. But, but in terms of temperature, um, we don't, it is not going to be a big change in terms of how salty you are. Gotcha. And so, so if I'm a, say, Slayer X 4X salty sweater, which is what I was according to the, the sweat test that you all did, I'm going to be a 4X salty sweater, whether it's 50 degrees outside or 90 degrees outside. Yeah. And uh, 
you know, we talk a little bit about cool weather as well, but your, your rate of, of, of fluid loss uh, can obviously change. But uh, in terms of your uh, sodium concentration and your sweat, no, not, not radically different. Very good. Very good. So that actually segues into another question that we had, and that's about the level of saltiness in your sweat based on the amount of salt you've been eating lately. So does the level of saltiness in your sweat change based on how much salt you've been eating lately? And if like, if you have a really, really salty dinner, is your sweat going to be saltier the next day? So, uh, there, they, I have read some studies on that and, uh, there, there's a, there can be some minor changes in it. Um, they, they did, they read a study in the journal of a hypertension recently about, people who follow more of a low sodium diet versus a high sodium diet in terms of uh, the concentration uh, they did, they, they checked sodium concentration. They also did some urine analysis as well uh, in those, in those t- uh, test subjects. Um, not a, not a huge difference. I mean, you're talking about 0.05% difference and maybe a 1.001, I mean a 0.001 difference. So not, not radically different. No. Uh, sweat does play a role in the sodium balance. In your body, but um, they didn't see a, a significant difference in um, people who, you know, ate a lot of salt uh, gotcha. versus uh, didn't eat a lot of salt. There, just minor differences. There, there is a little bit, but not 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 huge differences though. Gotcha. So not not like a big enough difference to where if I'm a four x <laughs> salty level of sweater on one day mm-hmm. and I have a really really salty dinner, I'm not going to switch to two x the next day. Like like I should stick with the no four. no. You can stick with the forex, yeah. Just anecdotally, I've noticed that, um, you know, like if you have like something like a salty meal the night before a big race or workout, um, like if you get like a bunch of pizza or something, say, not the greatest pre-run meal, but um, (laughs) I've noticed like your hands will swell. Like for me, my hands will swell and obviously I'm retaining a little bit more fluid. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times I'll notice Mm -hmm. I actually need just a little bit more fluid. Hmm. Yeah. And the body, the body's very good at regulating what you need and don't need. And um, it's really good at expelling what you don't use as well. So next question, um, I've seen posts. Somebody wrote in that they had seen posts on the Facebook page about people who use Flare X in 70.3 Augusta. And so that's a race that's lasting for four hours, five hours, six hours, something like that. Um, and so what specific products did the folks that use Slayer X that you know about in Augusta and uh, the 70.3 in Augusta use? Um, and how did they actually set up their fueling? Like when did they use which products where? Um, so the people that I've reached out to, so one of the big ones was, since it's such a hot race, uh, was our hydrate product. Um, and they actually, they preload with it the night before, which Chuck, you, you could get Chuck going for a long time on preloading. Oh yeah. But, um, <laughs> make sure... They make sure that they, um, you know, the day before they consume, sometimes they'll even consume um, like a slight, the higher dosage, sodium dosage. Like one of our, one of our uh, badassiters, we call our ambassador people, um, he actually preloaded the night before with his 6X formula, even though he typically uses the 4X. Um, and then during the race, he took the hydrate with him on the bike mm-hmm. and he went through, I think he said three bottles per hour you know, that depends, you know, your mileage will vary, obviously, depending on how much fluid you lose. Mm-hmm. I usually go by myself. I go with two, two bottles an hour, usually enough for me. Um, and then he, he supplemented with some, uh, some other kind of like gels on the, on the bike. And then on the run, he went with, um, he went with what was on the course and then he took a spark plug, our caffeine, mm-hmm. our caffeine product, which is mm-hmm. a slow release caffeine, uh, which for a long run, like, you know, half marathon or, and more is, is great to have you know, be able to take it just a little bit at a time, mm-hmm. the way we used to like to use our spark plug. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other people that I've talked to preferred using diesel. Mm-hmm. So with diesel, it's an all-inclusive formula. Like you don't have to take anything else. You don't have to have food or anything else with that. Um, and then they just carried that with them on the bike to the tune of about two bottles an hour. And then they took a little bit of uh, water also mm-hmm. on the ride. And then um, they carried some with them on the run and then also supplemented with spark plug. Very good. And it was Very so good. hot. I mean, I think, I think everybody probably need to, needed to grab some waters too. <laughs> I mean, it was, that was just a miserable, miserably hot day. It was. It was. Well, fortunately, now we're getting ready to move into the, the cooler weather here, which segues into the last question they wanted to ask here. So um, are there any general guidelines around adjusting for cooler weather? So like if I look at myself, uh, the sweat test that I did at the Slayer X lab, I sweated 90 ounces at about 85 degrees. 
Um, is there like a mathematical formula that I can apply to estimate my fluid loss at say 75 degrees or 60 degrees or 45 degrees? Um, and so like generally speaking, how do you suggest people go about applying the hot weather fluid salt loss finding to cooler weather? So this is a good question because, you know, in the research that I've read, that's what's out there. Cold weather is not radically different than hot weather in terms of how much you should be using. And I'll, that's the short answer. Now, let me touch on a few reasons why when I say that. First off, the first thing out is the air is usually drier in, in, in cold temperatures, mm-hmm. and which increases your breathing rate. And it also increases the uh, respiratory water, uh, uh, increases the use of the respiratory uh, fluid. And, and so dry air actually dehydrates you faster. Okay, mm-hmm. so there's one reason why you want to continue your hydration. You also, uh, believe it or not, urinate more in cold weather than you do hot weather. Uh, blood vessels constrict in the, in the cold, so uh, your body's trying to conserve that heat and hold it in, and so um, that's called cold-induced uh, uh, diuresis. That's what it's called, and um, I, I notice it myself in the cold weather. I usually do uh, urinate more, so that's going to dehydrate you faster as well. A third reason is most of us uh, in cold weather, we, we wear more layers on our skin than we do in hot weather, so that creates what can, 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 uh, can be called microclimates. Uh, that also is going to increase your sweat. So it causes you to sweat more. And, and uh, I noticed that, you know, um, I, I sweat like a hog, whether it's uh, 40 degrees outside or 90 degrees outside, I don't really see a big difference in mm-hmm. the amount of sweat. So, and then finally, uh, because your body's trying to maintain that core temperature of 98.6 in the cold weather, um, that uh, uses a lot more of your glycogen storage and your body's working harder there. So you really should not uh, drastically change uh, your hydration strategies in the cold weather versus the hot weather. You might, you might not lose as much fluid, but uh, as far as your amount of sodium you're losing, things like that, it's going to be very similar. Aside from that, uh, if you really want to dial it in and know for sure, just get tested in the winter and also get tested in the and compare it to the summer. And we can, we can also do that as well. Right. If you did want to come in right now, we're actually running a $99 uh, sweat test special. That's awesome. mm-hmm. off our usual price. So if you're interested in finding out, exactly how much less you, you put out come find out awesome yeah awesome very good well chuck and care we appreciate you joining us for our periodic installment here and uh, we encourage everybody to send us in more questions for the Solarex crew thanks everybody thank you thanks all right back to the podcast now michelle Second point that Mary Kane made. Um, she believes strongly that we need to have more women um, in power. You know, she said, part of me wonders if I had worked with more female psychologists, nutritionists, and even coaches where I'd be today. So I think this is a, you know, a good point to talk about in terms of females and coaching. And um, we have very few females as professional running coaches. And mm-hmm. even at the NCAA level, all through Division One through Division Three, we're seeing it more and more, but, um, having women, you know, in the power position might, you know, she believes probably would have changed her trajectory. So, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, on on that note, like Shalane Flanagan, I think, um, said it best. (laughs) Yeah. There's been, I think a a real marked difference between what Shalane Flanagan is saying and what I might have expected her to say. And even what other people are saying is that, that she is actually really sort of broken away from the Nike line. She was quoted, I, I read, she said, this is not fun, but I'm hopeful that Nike will take the appropriate action and that we can be part of the solution. The hard work begins now. I want to figure out how our team can help guide a culture change in our sport. I hope that they, talking about Mary Kane and Kara Goucher, feel we support them. They took on a big burden and we're in a position to affect significant positive change because they're willing to shine an important light on these topics, unquote, which I think is a fantastic quotation. I think, um, and I yeah. wish that that was the Nike line, but Shalane Flanagan's kind of out on this, this limb by herself right now. I think that right there shows us kind of the first Shalane Flanagan, the professional athlete, to Shalane Flanagan, the um, coach of professional runners. And... It's hard for these, you know, athletes that have been with Nike for their entire professional careers and rely on Nike, um, you know, their salary and their livelihood and everything. But I think Shalane and others are walking as fine a line as they can to um, make a statement that this is not okay. Um, It's a problem. And she specifically is saying, I'm in a position where I can affect change here 
thanks to people like Mary Kane and Kara Goucher and Allison Felix even, um, who've been speaking out recently. So I hope we see that. Um, I think it can only benefit. I think we see how it benefits the women that Shalane works with at the Bowerman Track Club, and it can become kind of more pronounced maybe across the professional running scene for women. We see it with Lauren Fleshman with her group Little Wing out in Bend, Oregon. Um, The more women that we can get into these positions, then I think the less likely we are to have um, Mary Kane fallouts. And can I just, like, I feel like this is the biggest point or takeaway that you can have from this story. So, like, when we talk about, all right, Alberto Salazar was having, you know, an abusive relationship with this individual athlete, you could almost... Explain and, and others. We're going to get to that. Yes. Okay, okay. Good point. But you can almost explain that away as okay. Alberto Salazar's evil. This to me is like the biggest point we can take away as endurance athletes, as endurance coaches, and just in kind of how we approach, you know, athletics in general. That we need to have more women's voices in women's sports. Like we talk about all. You know, one thing you know, George, we've talked about several times is when we want to make decisions about like you know female athletes like um, Caster Semenya. We need to make sure women are on the committees that make those decisions. Yeah. And intersex athletes and, and all Yeah, that. I mean and, and you people know from Africa and yeah. Um, it's not just looking at wins and losses as much as kind of looking at the athletes and welfare and growth mm-hmm. as an individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean I can tell you, I mean I I ran in college, I mean in, in collegiate in a lot of collegiate running um, programs, it's one male coach who coaches a female team and a and a male team. Mm-hmm. And that it just shouldn't be that way because then it offers a lot of the female athletes they don't have someone that they may feel like they can go to you know that has maybe the same rapport i mean i'm i don't yeah i have an experience like, of a male coach and he a division one program and i mean it was rowing it wasn't running but we were weighed publicly in the weight room probably two or three times a semester so you don't ever one man in charge of you know 30 something women you're a little helpless. <laughs> oh yeah, and and, and for me, I, I come back to to the point I was making before about you know what is Sal, Alberto Salazar's training to become a coach. So so if you have if you have a a a man who comes up through a, a, a male dominated system and has a male coach and then becomes and, and and never has any additional training about what it means to be a coach and a nurture athletes and then and then begins to coach the way that he was coached. And he's coaching women now. He's going to coach them with a mindset towards towards men and right. towards the old boys club and all that sort of thing. And in the NCAA level right now, by the way, there's something like 270 men, male cross country and track coaches, and there's about 70 uh, female uh, uh, track cross country and track coaches. And there's, I believe, there's only one woman who coaches men. And I was going to mention um, too, of those 70 women who are coaches, how many are head coaches and how many are like student assistants right you know what i mean yeah, um i don't know, I don't know. and, and that that lifestyle for a female head coach is not you know very family friendly so for sure for sure <laughs> women which, are typically is, weighing that you know yeah whether they're going to rise to the ranks of head coach well, and, 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 and so so even like that mindset though like like the mindset of be, need, needing to be able to see a, a female athlete in her full context um, of of what that means for. I mean, think about you know what what he said to Kara Goucher's family um, as she's crossing the finish line of the Boston Marathon six months after giving birth. Um, like like the whole idea of not appreciating and understanding that that's a profound thing that she wanted to do and needed to do and and as as a woman and then yeah and, and just saying that she oh she's still too fat as a result of that like you, you, that's that's just a profound misunderstanding of of the female situation. And so he's just not paying attention to the larger context in which he was operating. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So similar, similar note, um, Krista Austin, um, another, uh, another, uh, someone who worked inside kind of the Nike sphere. She was a nutritionist, um, who worked with Amy Begley. And we're going to talk about Amy Begley here in just a minute, but, um, she said, and I thought this was interesting too, and it kind of goes to this point. Uh, she said, one thing I will not do is bash Alberto Salazar because there's a system that failed him just as much as that system has failed Mary Kane. While I will never support the comments that he made that are coming out now, there's a much bigger picture here that we need to stop and take a look at. We don't do a good enough job educating our coaches and supporting them and putting the balances into contracts and systems like the coaching group itself, the way USA Track and Field operates, or how sports scientists and medicine practitioners are held accountable. Which is a great segue into Mary's third call for change, which is the fact that she feels and 
believes that we need more information about, you know, women's health, menstruation, transition through puberty, how to deal with suspected eating disorders, red S and so on into our coaching education. Absolutely. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, that was her, you know, and it shouldn't take women specific conferences and women only coaches. This is information that at this point in science is readily available and, um, you know, it's a it's a bigger conversation about when does a female athlete peak, especially in the sport of running, and this pressure to take 16, 17, 18, you know, 21-year-old female bodies and make them, you know, into what we see now in the Shalane Flanagan and Des Linden and, um, you know, Amy Craig. These women are dominating the sport, winning world major marathons, and they are in their mid-30s. So, um and to add to your point, when you, you mentioned the science is readily available, I would um, almost make the, the opposite point that we need to do more studies that actually um, take Include the differences women. between <laughs> men and women into account. Oh, for sure. Like Almost I mean, every research study that you guys talk about on your research podcast. It's done on men. Yeah, it's done on men. Yeah. yeah. So Absolutely. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, this is something that was kind of brought to my attention very recently. Um John Oliver, I mean, he even did like an episode of this. We talked about how medical yeah, HBO, research. The HBO comedian. Yeah, is it, a lot of medical that. research is done solely on men. Yeah. Um, there and was even a research on, done. On, on young men who are, who are college undergrads at the time, yeah. Exactly. Okay, so my favorite, I'm going to interrupt you. My favorite example of this is that the research about left brain and right brain, do you mm-hmm. know this, was yep. done on men back in the day. And they found that men tend to use the left side of their brain more. And so... And so they presumed as a result of that that, oh, men and women are different, so women must use the right side of their brain. And that was literally like the, the medical or the research standard for about 30 years. And it wasn't until the 1990s that somebody said, hey, why don't we actually study women before we draw conclusions about them based on a study about men? And they found that women don't tend to overly use the right side of their brain. Women tend to use their whole brain. So, so yes, indeed, men tend to be left-brained, women tend to be whole-brained. That's right, guys. We use our whole brain. Absolutely. So that's the reason why we brought you on, Michelle. We, 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 we knew we needed some more whole-brain. You brain needed the other here. side of your brain. Absolutely. Yeah. Keep going, Patrick. I totally interrupted you there. But, but no, you're I, fine. I, but and I agree with everything you're saying. And yeah. I would say that's just a, a general awareness we're coming to is that a lot of these research studies were done, as you mentioned, on men, and then they just drew conclusions about women from there. And that is... In, in, a haphazard, some, in a haphazard fashion, some, they, they either they 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 say whatever they want to say. They either say women are the same, or they say women are the opposite, and it's just based on the whims of the researcher. Right. <laughs> you know. Um, and and it, we really need to actually start to take into account that. Um, I mean, half the popu half this is half the population we're talking about. I mean, I don't know how to quite say it articulately other than to say like. You know, men who are doing these studies need to be more self-aware. Myself, inclu- I mean, myself included, when talking about and consuming and, and and reading some of this research. Absolutely, absolutely. On the note of like you know seeing the larger context, some of y'all might be hearing my sons playing in the background. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna borrow one, a, a note here from Michelle and just say hashtag real life. All right. Um, so let's talk about. Um, I'm, I'm glad we talked about Mary Kane's three points. I think that's good. Uh, Patrick said a little while ago that it's gonna get worse before it gets better. Um, I think that since Mary Kane's video, it has gotten worse. Definitely. Um, and, and one of the things that, that and, I, and I say that, I mean, it's gotten worse for Nike, or the story has gotten more troubling. Um, I think it's ultimately a better thing that more people are coming forward and speaking out. And one of those people that came forward and spoke out um, is Amy Begley, um, Amy Yoder Begley. Um, and she is uh, somebody that I actually know. How about that? Uh, and so this actually, th- this hit home for me because she is the elite athlete coach. Her and her husband, Andrew Begley, uh, are the elite athlete coaches at the Atlanta Track Club. Um, and they have been for about the past five years or so. Um, I, I had a conversation with the two of them and I ran a little bit with them um, uh, when about five years ago when they first came on the scene uh, and they wrote some workouts for me and stuff like that since I was part of the master's team. So this week, I think it was on Monday, um, they, a... Um, an article came out in the New York Times also um, that where Amy Begley basically said that, that well, she had Thursday, been a victim of all this stuff. Was it Thursday? Yeah, okay, thank you for that. I don't know. I mean, it's it's been a lot <laughs> on this. Um, but, you know, so, so a few things, uh, just directly quoting from her. Um, Alberto asked me to sign a contract stating that I would, wouldn't try to be friends with team members. I was supposed to be a cordial person, but nobody on the team wanted friends, he said. Uh, he told me my laugh was annoying. Another time he told me I was too depressing. My dog had just died and I was probably sad that day. I was toward the warm-up by myself so I wouldn't depress my teammates. 
Um, in December 2008, he told me my performance was all a fluke and that I was too heavy. He said that to be on the elite level, I needed to weigh less than I did. Um, and at the time that he was saying all this, she weighed 114 pounds. Um, in 2011, he ended up kicking her off the team. And when he did it, he said, uh, he said he didn't care what the science said. I know what I see, and you have the biggest butt on the starting line. Um, and so, so weight was a was a big entry point for abuse of her as well. Um, but he extended it out to making her sign contracts not to make friends with the team and criticizing her laugh and telling her she was too sad and depressed all the time, um, like commenting on her personality and stuff like that as well. Um, I think that just shows the reign of his control mm -hmm. and how emotional abuse sometimes can go unrecognized when you are in the midst of it all. But when you can kind of step back and look at the big picture and look at how much control they had and how damaging, you know, the things that they said and did were, then you kind of see it come full circle. So um, I was pretty surprised that Amy spoke out in the way that she did. I'm, I feel, you know, for her, like this must be a major relief in a sense. Um, I thought that it was really interesting that Kara Goucher, you know, followed up to her, to Amy's New York Times piece and uh, apologized for, yeah. you know, she was her teammate and she at the time was Alberto's favorite and she didn't get the same criticism that Amy did and she also didn't speak up for her. Um, which just also goes to speak of the entire culture at the Nike Oregon Project that all these people, you know, they, they were witnesses to the way that Alberto treated Amy, the way that he treated Mary Kane, but there is no room for anybody to kind of speak up against Alberto. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Kara Goucher said, uh, quote, remembering all of this makes me feel really, really bad. Amy was treated so terribly. I was relieved it wasn't me. Correct. And I think Kara actually called her mm -hmm. this week and apologized. And I would imagine that was probably a very emotionally charged conversation. Oh, yeah. She said, so she continued, I look back and I'm disappointed at who I was. It was everything. Uh, it was everything being on that team. Every aspect of your life controlled. And I was just relieved that I was the chosen one, that I was the favorite and she wasn't. Um, I mean, that's, again, like, that's, that's, that, that's what victims of abuse say. Like yeah. that, that, that's, that's like textbook, that, that idea of like, I'm just really doing me. I mean, yeah. Okay. So I feel bad that, that he's picking on her like that and, and making her warm up by herself and, 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 uh, saying that she had the biggest butt on the starting line. So that she, Amy Begg's a 2008 Olympian, we should say. She's, yes. I mean, she, she, she ran, she ran the 10,000 meters in 2008. And when uh, he the kicked Olympic her Games. off the team, yeah. she had just finished sixth at USA's, yeah. which yeah. is not horrible by any means. Yeah. Yeah. She so, had finished sixth at USA's. And, and that, that wasn't that, good enough. That, that was the race where he said she had the biggest butt on the starting line. Um, is that, that she went, when she finished sixth in the USA in the 10,000 meters, he was like, yeah, well, you have the biggest butt on the starting line. But I think the upside of maybe Amy's experience is that, like Mary was calling for the type of change that we need with more women, you know, as head coaches and with the power that Amy takes her experience and the elites that she works with the with the Atlanta Track Club, I would, I mean, I don't know because I'm not an elite on the Atlanta Track Club team, but I would venture to think that based on her experience, these women are getting, you know, the type of female coach and role model mm -hmm. um, and support system that you know, she probably needed when she was part of the Nike Oregon project, but never yeah. got. So um, she, she, she said in that article, she makes it a priority with the athletes that she coached. Now, of course she says that, and I presume that she does as well. I presume um, that also. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, and, and, um, I have no reason not to presume that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I do, I do think that's a positive thing. And, and so, you know, looking forward, you know, between Amy is now a part of like the coaching scene, um, and, and you consider like what Shalane Flanagan said, I mean, this is hopefully, ideally a catalyst for change. So why doesn't Nike get on board? That's, that's just what I don't understand. Why didn't Nike speak and say, say, oh, okay, yeah, there's this change happening. Let's get on board with it. Cause they tend to be so good with that with everything else. Right. They tend to tend to, I mean. No, I, I, I think they tend to I, I present a front of being on board right. with ch right. change and what's best and, you know, how they want women to succeed. But we can go back to the whole dream maternity thing with Alicia right. Montano and Allison Felix and, right. and see that it's not always what, you know, it seems based on what they show the world. That's not really maybe what they believe. All right, so Patrick, what's it going to take? Because, because, because Colin Kaepernick came to Atlanta this week. <laughs> Colin Kaepernick, who who they still sponsored, they made the centerpiece of their ad campaign last year. Um, uh, you know, Colin Kaepernick, of course, who was kneeling during during the the um, the 
Star Spangled Banner in order to protest uh, you know, structural racism inside of American police departments um, and became a, a flashpoint for all sorts of things, became kind of a persona non grata inside the NFL as a result of a lot of these things, and they circled around him and they supported him, and even though he's not even currently playing, they made him the centerpiece of their ad campaign last year. Um, and he showed up in Atlanta this week, walking through the airport, decked Covered out in all Nike. Nike gear. I mean... And, and and I'll just go ahead and put it out there. I like what he did, and I appreciate them being <laughs> on this on that side of the politics of that. I'm okay with that. Um, so Nike is conflicting. Yeah, I know. It's like, Nike's like Tupac. <laughs> I mean, they're... <laughs> you know? I'm I listening mean, to season three Are you three into of, your podcast? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm listening to season three of Slow Burn right now, so Tupac and Biggie are at the front of my head. Right. It is good, but, but, but they're like a barrel of contradictions, and... and I, I, I want them to at least resolve this contradiction well enough for me to be able to wear my vapor flies on March 1st. There's a lot of time between now and March 1st. I agree. There's exactly 15 weeks. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> As Patrick also knows, because Patrick is ignoring Michelle's advice not to run a marathon the day after the Olympic trials and is running the Atlanta marathon the day after the Olympic trials. So. We need to make that announcement public. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick, the newly married man. Um, so, so, yes, indeed. Patrick so, is actually recording with us for the first time what? as a married man. He accomplished his A goal. Let's just take a moment, Patrick, from all this depressing <laughs> stuff and, and, and appreciate the fact that you're now a married man. Congratulations. Congratulations, Mr. Ollinger. Appreciate it. Yeah, there's a reason I'm behind on my uh, reading of the New York Times stories, etc. That's okay. Your, uh, your, your A goal, as I put on the uh, as I put on the podcast, <laughs> was to get married this year. Was to get married this year. You said that. You know, um, we're gonna get Michelle, by the way, to 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 be part of the year end wrap up this year and talk about next year and talk about goals and all that sort of thing. That's, gonna, that's gonna be fun. Anyway, oh yeah. Keep going, Patrick. So I just want to almost backtrack to to, to the comments that that Salazar made about. Um, you know, Amy Begley. Yeah. In case any listeners are, are maybe new to running or still kind of, you know, aren't quite sure their footing in, in the running community, I just want to be clear. Like, obsessing over your weight to improve your running is not a thing. Like, it really is not something you should focus on. Like, that's and, – and it, it sounds like such a simple point, but I just want to be very clear. It's not like when the NBA focuses on, hey, how tall are you? And it has a very big impact on how good you are at playing basketball. Like, it's – like you don't no one has ever finished a race and gone gee if i had weighed four pounds less i would have won that race that's not a like that's just not even that doesn't like that's not a thing that doesn't make somebody a better runner that doesn't make someone a stronger runner it clearly was a source of control and a way for him to assert his power over his runners so i mean that might be a simple point but i just want to make very clear it's not even like he was driving them too hard to be better athletes he was picking almost like random numbers, and it sounds like too with Mary he, Kane. He was picking a random number, yeah. With Mary Kane, he kept changing the requirements, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, like in other sports, because it wasn't about our weight, right? Because in other sports, we do say, hey, we have evidence that says in order to be a good quarterback, you generally have to be about six one. That is completely different than saying, oh, well, we just gonna, we're just going to pick a number that's five pounds less than you are, or four pounds less than you are right now, and just kind of keep pushing someone. In, in, to in, the point in, of, in order, in order of breaking. To a, yeah, in order to be an elite, you have to be 114 pounds. It happened to be the same number, by the way, for, for Mary Kane and Mary Amy, Kane and Amy yeah. Begley, um, who are not the same height, I don't believe. But, but Not at all. But, but see, that to me, again, just circles back around to it's just bullshit. I mean, he's not yeah. actually concerned about how much they weigh. <laughs> it's, all just a, a, it's all just an entry point to, to gain and maintain control. I also just want to make a point on what Patrick said Um you know, to not overly focus on weight. I think that it's a really slippery slope, maybe more so for female runners than yes. than male runners. Although we are seeing many more men come out and speak about, um, you know, we have Jesse Thomas talk about bulimia while at Stanford. We have Mario Fraioli, you know, dedicate a lot of time to talking about um, his experience with feeling like he needed to be a certain number and look a certain way and that that would mean he would run really fast. But I think uh, Lauren Fleshman had an op-ed in the New York Times yesterday. You can search it uh, titled, I changed my body for my sport. No girl should. And she details, you know, a very um, healthy body positive mentality with her body and running all the way from the time that she was a star high school athlete competing at Foot Locker when everybody around her was eating salad for dinner and she fueled herself with pasta and made it to the podium all the way through her Stanford career and then how that spiraled once she made the transition to professional running. So I think it's easy to say 
nobody should focus on their weight. You don't need to be a certain number. But I think that we forget about the culture permeates this message. And um, it's just not always so easy to, you can believe that. But I think a lot of people end up shooting too hard to reach that number. I agree with you on that. I agree yeah. with you on that. And, 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 I, and I should say, too, that, that it does change a little bit when you get older, as the oldest person in the room, um, because, because maintaining a race weight becomes more difficult. Um, but, but that being said, I, I, I would, I agree with Patrick and I would amend it slightly to say that, that, that the absolute lightest you are doesn't mean the fastest you are. And I think the more experience you have getting to whatever race weight means for you, Mm -hmm. I think we all naturally, once our mileage gets up and we really hone in on nutrition and maybe cut out alcohol might be something I do, um, (laughs) or I try to do, you know, two weeks, six months before a race. I feel like no matter what happens, once I get to that point where I'm seven to 10 days out, my body just naturally gets to the point where I want it to be. Um, And I think most professional athletes would say the same. Uh, You just, the training gets to a certain point, your metabolism gets to a certain point. As Mm -hmm. long as you're fueling adequately and sufficiently, your body's going to be where it needs to be in order to perform. And and intelligently, yeah. Yeah. I I, I think that my, my eating improves because I want my fueling to improve throughout the course of a training cycle and, and that means I eat better foods and, and I end up losing weight as a result of that. You know, I don't I don't, you know, eat a bunch of candy and drink a bunch of alcohol and and, and have pizza and burritos for multiple meals every day. Um, which is left to my own devices exactly what I do. Basically what you do for two weeks after every race that Absolutely. You run. <laughs> and I and I gain several pounds and I get far from my race weight during that time. But but I but I totally but agree. You get back to it. So but I get back to it and it takes a little while. You know, as an older person it takes a little while. But but yeah, yeah. but but I've definitely learned that that um, being my absolute lightest doesn't mean I'm at my absolute fastest. And I and I, I submit that's true for everybody. And can I say another thing too? And this is some this is kind of a formulating thought here. When you're a professional runner, I fear that too like you and I can almost get in our quote unquote race weight for two marathons a year, mm-hmm. right? That I feel like where that also gets in dangerous territory with the professional runners, as you were talking about, Michelle, is they're almost on all the time. Mm-hmm. And so then it becomes a much more, in my opinion, like dangerous association or relationship with your food, the food you eat and the body that you own. Yeah. Because, um, I think the top runners wax and wane. I think they have a good balance of pizza, burgers, whiskey. But they, but they, but you wouldn't if you were with Alberto Salazar, because Alberto Salazar, if he's picking on you about your weight constantly, and also you, you're not going to let your weight go up too yeah. much, even during the times when it would be probably healthy right. for you mentally and physiologically to do that, because you're worried that it's going to subject you to more abuse. It's different for the track runners, also. It's different for a 1500 meter runner who's got a you know a several month long track season. It's got to race every Correct. five to ten days. You know, I don't think that um, Kara was never really bothered much by his comments about weight until it was after she had a baby and she was still a little bit too heavy. So I think the marathoners do a pretty good job. I mean, Meb, you know, he's detailed his nutrition extensively and it doesn't look amazing uh, until he gets, you know, 10 to 12 weeks out from a marathon, but he is careful all the time. Um, But I think the track runners are kind of more at bay they're putting on those skinny kits every week and uh just have to be ready for racing a lot more often than the marathoners i mean what else do we have to say about this uh i mean I, you know i i think we've talked about nike we've talked about amy begley we've talked about weight we've talked about abuse we've talked about alberto salazar you know one thing i will mention that that i did make a note that i want to make sure that i included um the there is potential long-term damage to mary kane yeah um i think that that um, you know, she's what, 23 years old now? Correct. And so, so, so by most accounts, you might be like, oh, well, she, you know, she still has her best years in front of her. Well, it's not just that she missed out on, you know, several years of good training as a result of this, but there's also potential long-term health issues. She's describes, uh, what, what she's described is, is the, the symptoms related to red S, um, R-E-D-S. And, and that can have long-term health implications in the, in, in the form of cardiovascular disease, infertility, and osteoporosis. And so, you, you know, Michelle said here at the jump, it looks as if she might never fulfill that promise. I hope so, but signs are pointing against it right now. And that's really tragic. Will we ever see her run at the level that she ran at before? 
I guess it remains unknown. She's only 23. I mean, she certainly has an opportunity to come back. I guess it just depends on, you know, does she want to try to become the best runner in America again? Or does she want to advocate for change and kind of run with the momentum that she's created now? Um, She's way ahead of her. I would say she's way ahead of the average (laughs) 23-year-old woman out there. So um, Yeah, but I mean, and I guess this kind of circles back around to Patrick's point about not knowing all the details necessarily. And, and nor should we, by the way. Like, we don't need to know her medical details, obviously, but but we just don't quite know how deep the damage is. Yeah. Um, and that's that's both physiologically and psychologically. I mean, does she still want to be the fastest girl in America, or or is she just like, you know what, fuck running? Because, because I would be. Um, so so I, I, I could totally understand that as well. So, all right, y'all. We also wanted to talk about how the marathon was moved to Sapporo. We also wanted to talk a little bit about the marathon trials. We're going to have to save those for next time that the whole crew gets back together again, right? We also want to talk about changes to the Diamond League. No, we do. And about how Wanda now owns everything. So the the, the same company that, that... And what about cycling? Did we forget so, to talk about cycling? You know what? All right. So I'm glad you said that. <laughs> My influence is spreading. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so that being said, I want to put out a general call to the listenership of, uh, of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast. If you want to come on the podcast on a fairly regular basis and talk about cycling with me. Please, by all means. I want to put that out to everybody because I have my two podcast partners, both of whom I really enjoy being with, and neither one of them wants to talk about cycling. So, I'm happy to talk about triathlon. I, you are happy to talk about triathlon. And Ironman. I, I can that. handle that. Yeah, yeah. But I can't but, do cycling. But the Volta a España was fantastic this year. We haven't talked about it. The World Championships, only a couple weeks after that, were fantastic. We haven't talked about it. So, so there George some, needs a cycling friend. I do. Wahoo bought speed play. I mean, there's just so many interesting things happening inside the, the, the cycling world. And alas, they are not being discussed here on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast. So, if you want to be my cycling podcast buddy... Drop us a line and let us know. Michelle, thanks for being here. Patrick, thanks for being here. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance, Blue Pineapple Travel, and Slayer X. Don't forget to reach out to us on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Reach out to us on Twitter, at Pleasant Podcast. We're on Instagram now, at Most Pleasant Exhaustion. And you can download us on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, on Apple Podcasts, or on Spotify. Don't forget to reach out to our sponsors as well. ITL Coaching and Performance can be found at itlcoaching.com, at itlcoaching on Twitter, facebook.com slash performance, and on Instagram, itlcoaching. Blue Pineapple Travel can be found at bluepineappletravel.com at facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel or on Instagram, bluepineappletravel. And SlayerX can be found at slayerx.com at facebook.com slash hereforslayerx. That's the number four, hereforslayerx. On Twitter, at officialslayerx. And on Instagram, hereforslayerx. Don't forget to use the pleasant 2019 discount code for 10% off anything at their website. On behalf of Michelle Frank and Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. We appreciate your listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.